everything just seems to fall apart. Um, it's actually my morning. Let me tell you, I'm having the everything, the wheels come off the bus, you know, um, um, first thing in the morning. Like, I, I'm, I'm having that day. And, and, and the question arises, what do you do with that? Like, when, when everything seems to fall apart and you back up and say, God, is this really fair? <laughs> is this really what you intended to give me? Um, we're looking at what the scriptures has to say about that. And last week, if, if you missed it, it's on the Facebook page. You can go listen to it. Um, we talked about this idea that, that, um, we're supposed to rejoice in trial because it builds our faith and it builds perseverance. Um, this week we're going to come at this from a slightly different perspective. Um, and actually I hope that's God's perspective. Um, the last song that we sang, which, which, um, I didn't plan it this way, but it, it fit. Um, so I'm guessing that's a Jesus thing. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is, um, when you see in, in the scriptures the angels singing praise to God, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The reason that they do that is because um, God has different qualities, right? God is loving, God is just, God is um, powerful, God is all-knowing. Um, but God's first and foremost, right, his quality that's at the top of the list is his holiness, like and and so they praise him by pointing out his his preeminent qualities, holy. Um, but it's hard for I think it's hard for us. I got a bigger area to walk. Um, it, it's hard for us as as um, fallen people to understand this. Holiness is set apart entirely from anything that's wicked, anything that's sinful in any way, even tinged a little bit with sin. Holiness is is as far away from that as it can possibly be. And this is the God that we're talking about. Um, God who is so pure and holy and good and just that even to step into his presence as sinful human beings would be, would be disastrous for us. Um, and he bridges that gap because we're fallen, right? Anybody here perfect? Keep your hand down, Eric. <laughs> you can raise your hand, though, Daniel. <laughs> I, I took a shot at him last week. I had to build him back up. We, we're all fallen. We all sin. And so we're all separated from God. Um, from God's perspective, there's a degree to which, you know, the mess is here, right? And we lose sight of that when life is crum- crummy. Anybody, anybody have a disaster ever? Oh, really? <laughs> and, and you back up and you look at it and you're like, all right, God, you know, what gives? Do you, do you see where I'm at? Um, this question is asked by Job. You guys know who Job is, right? Um, Job was a fellow who had a bad couple days in a row. Um, his family was killed. His, his sizable fortune was stolen. Um, and then his house burned down. And, and the only person who survived was his wife, who was kind of a shrew. And, and we find him like, what? That's not a bad word. <laughs> she was. What does she say to him? She comes up to, like, like Job is sitting. I have to defend this now. <laughs> Job is sitting in the ashes that was his house, right? And he's got leprosy. The guy's body is rotting off of him. And the only thing he's got left is a broken piece of plate. And he's scratching himself, like, on his sores. And Job's wife comes along, and what does she say? Go ahead and die, Job. Jeez. Just give up already. She was obviously a pastor's wife. Mm. (laughs) I love you, honey. Uh, (laughs) Um, 
So the only thing he should have lost, he kept. And so he's sitting there in this pile of ashes, in this mess, and his friends come along, and they spend the first three days hanging out with him, right? Which is sort of weird to us. They come and they sit down around him in the ashes that was his house. I can almost imagine him, like, pulling up the burnt couch, you know, and, and trying to find a place to sit. And they sit silently for three days, okay? In our culture, this doesn't make much sense. Um, in their culture, you would do this thing called sitting in Shiva. And, and that's as close as I understand that. What you would do is, like Jewish folks still do this, where when somebody suffers a tragedy, you go and you don't talk. It's actually considered like the height of impropriety to talk until that person elicits talking. And you sit and you're just present with them. Because sometimes when you're in a disaster, it's just nice to have somebody sit with you. Usually they say something dumb, which is why you're not supposed to talk. <laughs> what? <laughs> And actually, as soon as they start talking, they say every dumb thing they could possibly say, right? Well, Job, it's obvious you lost everything because it's your fault. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but Job says one of my favorite lines from Scripture, right? And, and I, I, I don't think a day goes by I don't think about this line where, where Job backs up and he's yelling at God in his dialogue with his friends. And he... he throws out this accusation. He says, God, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you even see the way mortals see? What's Job saying, right? Do you even understand things from my perspective? Can you get how awful this is? Anybody ever thought that? (laughs) God just doesn't get how miserable this is. I'm going to knock the pulpit down. Um, God doesn't get how miserable this is. God doesn't get how hard this is. Why doesn't he walk this road with us? Um, We're going to talk a little more about that next week. But I'm going to start by saying that Job is asking the wrong question. Job's question is driven by, my life is miserable, poor old me. Right? Anybody ever been there? Anybody live with somebody who lives there? (laughs) Um, It's It's bad. And and Job's perspective, God, why don't you see things from my way? And I'm going to pose this in a different way. When we go through difficulty, perhaps a beginning to dealing with God is stepping back and trying to see things from his perspective. And and I kind of went back and forth about how to how to look at this and how to explore this in the scriptures. And and ultimately God puts that to Job, by the way, when God shows up and calls Job out, he says, Hey Job, you ever make a planet? Job's like, oh, no. You ever, like, make a hippopotamus? No. You ever open flowers on the, you know, in the morning sun? No, I haven't done that either. He's like, well, until you've done all that, don't ask me why I do things. <laughs> the end. You know, God says, until you can see it from my shoes, don't ask. And so as we look at the question of, like, what's God's perspective in this? We're actually going to jump over to Hosea. And if you've got a Bible, you can open to Hosea. This will be chapter 1. I was originally going to talk about Abraham, to be honest with you. And I couldn't, it, it, it just wouldn't click in my head. And so in the end, I ended up preaching about, we're going to be preaching about Hosea this morning. Um, Hosea is one of the minor prophets. It's in the Old Testament, for those of you guys who can't find it. Toward the end of the Old Testament. Hosea 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. By the way, this is a PG-rated sermon. 
I forgot to mention that in advance. So if you have small children um, who need their, their virgin ears protected, they, I think there's somebody in the nursery, right? Um, you, you can go if you, if you need to, uh, Kate. Um, <laughs> um, so God tells Hosea, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find this woman. Her name's Gomer, by the way, and there's other problems with her. Um, I want you to go find this woman, Gomer, and I want you to marry her. And, and Gomer is, is a harlot. Now, what this specifically means is not clear. She may have been a professional. Um, she may have just been a person of loose morals. Um, she may have participated in religious practices that involved um, sort of loose living. I'm trying to make this as gentle as I can. Um, most of the sermon week has been spent figuring out, trying you know, how to say this without being offensive. Um, but one way or the other, Hosea marries this woman, and she's, and she's kind of a tramp, right? Um, and, and what gets worse about it is we find out later, Hosea actually falls in love with this gal. Um, now, why are we starting here? Well, fact of the matter is, like God's holiness, we can't understand that perspective because we're fallen, right? So sometimes God will put things in terms that we can understand, um, marriage is one of those things that's, that's powerful, right? And if there's an area where you want a holy set-apartness, it's your marriage and your children, right? Like, like I love my wife. The thought of other men looking at her makes me mad. Um, the thought of, of other men, fl- you know, like flirting with her makes me mad. She was at a convention in Indianapolis, and a, a, a Chippendale, a former Chippendale guy hit on her. And that, man, I was mad about that for about six months. <laughs> It's a lucky thing I didn't find him or he would have kicked the crap out of me. <laughs> um, but there's sort of this otherness. Like, like I want this part of my marriage to be exclusive and set apart and pure and holy, right? Does, does this resonate? You guys get what I'm talking about? Um, it's that way with our children. I, I see Abby play with little boys. And I, I kind of, all right, all right, get over here. <laughs> You, you stand over here. <laughs> Stay away from those boys. Because, because we want sort of a set-apartness for our children, right? Particularly our daughters. The dads all know what I'm talking about. Um, so this is holiness. And God says, listen, my holiness has been offended by my people. Why? Because they play the harlot. How do they do that? They're worshiping gods that aren't him. Um, anytime we go out, and we chase after something that isn't God. It's like spiritual adultery. And how does God explain? How does God demonstrate this? He gives us Hosea. And and it gets worse, okay? Because this this isn't quite there. Like I said, we're going to find out in the next verse. Her name is Gomer, and that's bad. Um, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Whose son is it? Yeah, it's Hosea's son, right? Where it, the text seems to imply that it's Hosea's son. And he names his son, uh, and the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for a little, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, here's some backstory. You flash back four generations, and there's a slaughter that happens at Jezreel. And, um, God says to, to Jehu, well, you know, I'm going to punish you guys. And there's some sort of repentance. And he says, okay, I'm going to stay in my hand for four generations. And fourth generation comes along and God sends Hosea and he names his son Jezreel as a way of saying, hey, it's coming. 
you know, your punishment is coming. It's like when you're riding with your parents and you did something bad in public, and they're saying, hey, when we get home, or, or when your mom says, hey, when your father gets home, and you go and find a good hiding place. Um, so, so he named his first child Jezreel. Again, holiness comes into play here. He says, listen, I haven't forgotten what happened, and it's still coming, right? Now, here's where it gets messy. Let me find my spot. Um, verse 6, for those of you guys who are following along. And then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. What's missing in that passage? Whoops. So now his wife is having children with other people. Could you imagine? Could you imagine raising that child? Because that's what Hosea does. He sticks it out. Um, she conceived and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Rahamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel um, that I would ever forgive them. What's he saying? Well, he names this child Lo-Haram and uh, Rohamah. Uh, uh, basically what this means is, all right, the line is crossed. I'm Mercy is over. Um, you start producing children and, and mercy is done. Right, like this, this level of infidelity is is bad enough that God is God is now His holiness is offended to a degree that's 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 only really comparable to this type of like arrangement. Right, you know, if you are married, gentlemen, or actually ladies, if your spouse is suddenly parenting a child with another while married to you, this is a line. Am I right? It's a big line. It's a hurtful line. And God backs up and says, you know what? This is an offense to my holiness, and there's no mercy coming out of it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to back up. Um, but it keeps going. Um, because then Gomer goes out and parents another child. The third child is named um, Lo-Ami, um, which basically means like, you are not my people. And what God says is, you know what, the way you people are acting, you're not my people. There's a double entendre there where, like, literally, Jose has just named this child, not my kid. Could you imagine that? I mean, like, there's no illusion here. This is not my child. Um, but he sticks it out. What kind of weight would that be for Hosea? Um, what kind of burden would that be? But you know what is kind of crazy about this is, in this story, in this prophetic act, we have a glimpse of what God's heart is like. And oftentimes when we encounter betrayal or disaster in our lives, the first question we ask isn't, what's God's perspective on this? How do I know God better through this experience? Well, how would we know God better? Well, ultimately, betrayal gives us a glimpse as to what God's heart is like. And it's God's heart when I sin. Like, when I chase after things that aren't God, that's how God responds. That's what God, like, experiences. That's how God feels about my sin. For that matter, that's how he feels about your sin, too. When we rebel, that's what God experiences. Um, and take it a step further, we look around. Anybody notice the culture's kind of coming apart on us? That things that used to be wicked and hidden are now out in the front? It's like it's being put out there. How does God experience it? Like a father who has 
you know, the infidelity brushed in his face through, through children that aren't his, like every day. This is what God experiences. And honestly, when we, when we experience mess and disaster and, and breakdown in our lives, these are moments we can back up and say, this is what God knows. This is how it is for God. Um, and honestly, when we're in, in our most honest places, which isn't a spot many folks find themselves, we can back up and say, this is how God feels about my sin. There's a gap in the story at this point. The narrative sort of ends, and there's a whole lot of prophecy that gets dumped out in chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the son of Israel, though they have turned to other gods and they love raisin cakes. By the way, raisin cakes is a reference to like certain acts committed while worshiping pagan gods. Got it? <laughs> um, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. All right, now look at this. So we're at a point where um, Hosea's wife has taken off and ended up in this situation where there are three possibilities here, okay? She's either a slave now, which is a distinct possibility. I mean, this is right there. She could have run off and um, pursued her profession and wound up a slave, which would be a mess, right? There's also the possibility that she's a kept woman. She's found a sugar daddy who's basically got her right? And it's taking care of her. But the important thing is, first off, they're still married. Um, secondly is, how does Hosea get her back? He pays for her. Oh my gosh, could you imagine paying for your own spouse? Wow. <laughs> no. <laughs> really? You had to do that? It was supposed to be a heavy moment? <laughs> he, the, the connotation here, by the way, is that he buys her time. He doesn't buy her like the way the language is set up. He buys her time. Um, um, it's, it's one of the uglier moments in the scripture. But let's have a look at this. A betrayed, loving God purchases his love back. Where do we see this? Well, I'm a wicked guy. I'm lucky I've only been here for a few months. Y'all don't know me that well. It'll start coming out. Um, I'm a guy who will do evil things. I'll disobey and offend God even when he does great things for me. And even though I'm, I'm a spiritual adulterer, right? Like I flee from God's presence when I get the chance. God sends his own son to be tortured and killed to buy me back. So now let's, let's think about this from our heart perspective. How much do I love my wife? How badly would it hurt me if she were to stray from me? And then to go out and give the most precious thing in my world to get her back, even though this is the depth of God's love for us. And it's given perspective through this. When Jesus Christ comes and pays this price for us, when we're bought back from our sinfulness, and literally, like, have no illusion, Paul describes it as, slavery, right? We are slaves to our sin. We're so enslaved that we would do anything other than worship God apart from God's intervention. 
he sends his only son to die for us. That's in Romans, right? Barely would a, I'm paraphrasing, this is the New Eric translation. Um, Paul tells us, rarely would a man die for a righteous man, right? Though for a good man, someone might dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, he sends his son to die for us. When I'm betrayed and I feel that, I get a taste of what God feels at the betrayal over my sin, my offense against his holiness. But then I also get the perspective of the amazing love God pours out at the cross. This amazing love that would have him come and collect me up and bring me home. And it's an amazing love that's extended to all of you. Despite our rebellion, despite our spiritual adultery, God would go any length to redeem us. Where do we see this other where, other spots in life? Because not many of us are going to necessarily encounter adultery. Well, we see a glimpse of God's heart when Jesus stands over Jerusalem, right? You guys know the line? Um, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how long have I, or how I have longed to draw you back together to me? Like a chicken, you know, or a rooster gathers up her chicks or something like that. I paraphrased again. Um, <laughs> Thanks, John. When are you going back to camp? <laughs> um, <laughs> God, <laughs> God God looks at his people and he says, man, I wish I could bring you back to me. Like a parent wishes to draw their children back. Anybody ever had a rebellious child that fled on you? And you say, man, I wish I could bring you back home. Not around here, but folks experience that. Um, we see this We see this throughout the scriptures. We see um, the story of a, of a boss sending his son to, to claim a vineyard, right? And what the vineyard workers murder the son in order to steal from him. Um, this betrayal, right? We have moments of glimpses of God's heart. And ultimately, the way this always plays out, right, the way this always plays out is that we see where our offenses, like, offend against God. Um, the parable of the young virgins, or the ten virgins who are waiting for their, their husband to come and marry them. And, and what do they do? They're foolish and they're lazy and they're not prepared when the day comes. I got married once. I remember my wife was crazy prepared when the day got there. Could you imagine showing up to your wedding and having your wife say, man, I forgot to buy the dress. I didn't even book the church. Wow, what a letdown, right? God's holiness is offended by our lack of, by our lack of readiness, by our laziness, by our offense against him. We know God through these moments. Um, when you're standing in your mess, when you're experiencing the pain that, that comes in life sometimes, when you're, when you're slogging through the, the, the mud and saying, God, why me? Um, there's this moment of pause where we can know God more through our hurt. Where through our betrayal and our sense of offense, we can say, this is what God experiences. And really, ultimately, when the darker... Anybody ever sit in a dark room? And turn on a flashlight. Is it brighter in a dark room or in a light room? Have you ever sat in a living room and turned a flashlight on and you can't even see it? Um, the darker the world is, the brighter the light that comes off the cross ultimately. The more we recognize the degree of God's offense, the more we can understand how amazing his love is. My challenge for you this week is to, is to look at your heart, look at your life, look at the mess you sometimes encounter. 
look at the experience of maybe one of your children looking at you and saying, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance now? It's God, right? Betrayed by his son. And then ask yourself, as much as I've hurt God, when I show up again and he runs out to meet me, how much does he love me? In difficulty, oftentimes people want to know why. Perhaps knowing God would be a better comfort. We're going to close in prayer. And I think Kate will have one more song. I didn't even have to ask. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I uh, pray that you would please help us to know your heart through our, through our difficulty. Help us to know your heart through the challenges we encounter in life, through loss and betrayal and, and just the mess that comes about in this sinful world. Lord, help us to, help us to stand close to you. And help us to lean on you more and help us to know your heart as a God who would love us more than we even deserve and love us enough to send his son to die for our sins. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.